picture that's looking bright It's like a barcode, it's black and white I got a credit card, I got a phone The chips are coming down like a dog with a bone But I owe my soul to the company store I owe my soul to the company store Charles here of the mindrenewed.com podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK and today I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program for another one of our quite unstructured but hopefully interesting chats Anthony Rituno, teacher, blogger and freethinker extraordinaire I will say originally from the UK but now living and working in Spain in Madrid Anthony it's good to speak to you again welcome back to the show thanks very much Julian nice to speak to you as well Ah, it's great to speak to you. Sometimes since we spoke last time, I actually can't remember quite when it was, about six months ago or something, was it? Something like that? It was just after the new year, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, how have you been doing in the meantime? Yeah, I've been doing fine, actually. Um, other than teaching uh, a lot of advanced English, which has taken up quite a bit of my energy, I've been uh, much more immersed in the expat music scene. Uh, there's a few Spanish as well, but it's quite predominantly expat. And also, sometimes as I was talking to people, we were joking that it sounded like I was interviewing them and I suddenly a light bulb went off and I thought, well, I've done podcasts before, I've been interviewed before, so I decided that I would interview musicians, you know, to promote them and to sort of, for myself as well. So I've done uh, five or six of those and it's been really good and all, all this sort of knowledge that I've accumulated, all these little tidbits of knowledge that whatever my interviewee is talking about, I can manage to chip in with a few things, so. Yeah, great. And those are published up on your YouTube account, aren't Yeah, they're all there, yeah. And um, you told me at some point that you're going to go backpacking. I'm not sure when you plan to do that. Is it in South America? Yeah, I'm flying in and out of Colombia, Bogota, at the end of July. I've got five and a half weeks. I'm hoping to get to some of the countries in the north of South America, if that makes sense. Uh Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, however, it depends on the budget and everything. But uh, some might say I'm a bit old to go backpacking because it gets harder. But uh, (laughs) I don't know about that, really. I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to... Travel very light. I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, quite envious in some ways, actually. <laughs> yeah. But I'm slightly older than you, so I'm not sure that I would cope with it very well. I'm not in terribly good shape, I have to say. So uh, I'm sure you're you're better equipped physically than I am to do that. <laughs> well, I actually wrote a blog post called uh, Travelling Light, which was nearly all true, tiny embellishments here and there. But basically it was all about the first time I went backpacking when I was about 25. I intended to travel light and ended up with a backpack so heavy that my back could hardly sustain it. And I actually lost my backpack while I was um, between Cambodia and Vietnam. And the irony of ironies, I suddenly realized that, you know, I was traveling lighter than I'd ever traveled before because I'd lost all my backpack and my day pack. And all I had was a bum bag with passport, traveler's checks and everything. God, how did that go? I mean, you managed to survive all right, obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was brilliant because I was with a group of people and I, but it's just one of those kind of, 
moments when you you realize that in spite of your best intentions you've actually achieved what you wanted to do which was to travel light mm. you know and be in the moment so to speak rather than start over planning everything mm. but i'm gonna get it right this time i'm i'm take a very small bag i'm not even taking any music i'm just gonna take a book and a guitar and oh. A few clubs. Very, very inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, well, all the best. I hope you enjoy it greatly and that you come back in one piece. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably come back. I think so, yeah. In case I don't um, have to say everything I've ever yeah. wanted to say on this <laughs> podcast right. now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I hope you've prepared absolutely everything you want to say. Great. Well, what we agreed that we were going to talk about, of course, was, I mean, we haven't agreed a title or anything like that, but it has to do with the subject of sort of advertising and how our lives are structured and formed by forces that are certainly beyond our immediate control. We're thinking of, obviously, government. We're thinking of corporations. Uh, so it involves the notions, as I say, of advertising and propaganda. And so it's a very wide field, lots of things to discuss. And uh, I know that we've both been thinking about it. We've got lots of anecdotes and things that hopefully will not just be heavy all the time, but will be slightly light at times, a bit amusing at times. So the best place to start, I guess, is going to be with some kind of definition, I suppose, of some of the words that we're using. So perhaps we should start with advertising. Have you got a definition for that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, in dictionaries, they vary a little bit. But here's here's a couple um, to advertise the verb, to try to persuade people to buy a product or service by announcing it on television, radio, newspapers, internet, etc., to provide information about a good or service to influence others. So I guess the key words there would be persuade and influence. Uh, just going back to the title, um, title that I thought might be good would be Advertising and Lifestyle Design. As I said, we're going to look at advertising, but in, in the context of how things are already set up, our lifestyles are already set up, as you said, in ways we don't know about. Indeed, and in fact, you know, in preparation for this, looking at some of the resources that you've sent and things that obviously I've found on my own, it becomes increasingly clear that many of the things that we take for granted as being just normality are in fact, you know, have been designed from... You know, quite some time ago by various people we have no idea about. And it, yeah. as you think about these things more, you become more aware. We live in this kind of prefabricated reality, really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going too far mm-hmm. by saying reality there, but the sort of social structures and societal structures we live in, we take these things for granted, but very often they have been designed for various purposes. And so hopefully we're going to unravel some of those things. So perhaps we should start with the most obvious area of advertising, what hits us when we watch TV or we hear the radio or we look at a newspaper, that sort of thing. That's the most obvious place to start, although, of course, it's only a very small part of what we'll be looking at. Yeah, sure. Obviously, uh, advertising TV ads have become far more sophisticated as the years have gone on. And we're going to talk about certain gentlemen, the father of public relations. We'll get onto that later on. Yeah. But I um, mean, if you just want me to take you through a few of the techniques, the sort of very basic stuff. I mean, humour is one. I mean, there's a famous advert in England for Cadbury's chocolate bar. The soundtrack of it is uh, the song In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, which has got a very famous drum break on it. It starts off, it has a close-up of a gorilla that pans out very, 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 very slowly. And you suddenly realise after about 30 seconds or a minute that the gorilla's by a drum kit with drumsticks in his hand and he does the drum break. And what's quite amusing about it is that it's got nothing to do whatsoever with the product. It's purely using humour, making it memorable. Another one, this is using irony in advertising. There's a product called Marmite, which may not mean too much to people overseas, but it's a sort of yeast-based product. Yeast extract, I think it calls itself, doesn't it? Yeast extract, yeah. And uh, If you have any Australian listeners, they will know Vegemite, which is a sort of vegetarian version of it. 
It's pretty good stuff, actually, Vegemite. I have had it. Yeah, well, they're very clever with this. Basically, it's a young man who takes this gorgeous blonde woman back to his apartment, and they start kissing, and then suddenly he starts retching, starts, uh, uh, you know, and then it just comes up on the screen, Marmite, you either love it or hate it. And it's very clever because it's preying on this thing about it being an acquired taste. And I was thinking as I was watching it, the people that like Marmite are going to feel like some sort of exclusive club. They're going to appreciate that. Well, actually, I went and had a look at the Marmite website and I had some thoughts about this. We're going to pick up this uh, later on when we talk about Edward Bernays with the idea of selling things, not just by being upfront about their qualities, but by triggering your desire to buy things in different ways. And, um, you know, when I looked at this website, it makes a heck of a lot of this. You either love it or you hate it. It's a meme there out there in the culture. I've heard lots of people say away from the context of the TV. And I'm wondering if it's a false dichotomy that's set up there, because some people obviously do dislike it. But say 20% of people really like it. 60% of people think it's okay. Mm -hmm. And only 20% of people really do dislike it. Okay, well, the meme says you either like it or you hate it. So that might make the 60% who think it's only okay think to themselves, well, I'm not in the dislike camp, so I must be on the like side of it. Oh, well, I like it then, don't I? You know, even though they're quite sort of neutral about it, but now they think, oh, yeah, I must be one of the like people. And so they end up buying it, but they might not have bothered before. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. But, I mean, it could be. I mean, you maybe have a slight like for something and then the advertising just pushes you a little bit further. They obviously think this is working because when you look at their history, they have a sort of history of favourite adverts and you look at the old ones, they're all based on health. Mm. You know, this is really good for you, the vitamins and all that kind of thing. And you look at their the new ones, which they particularly say they like, they're all, well, nearly all of them anyway are this, you either love it or you hate it. They're playing on that a great deal, so it clearly works. Yeah, interesting, yeah. Um, you've got other ones, very obvious ones. When when you're selling shampoo, it tends to be a woman in a tropical setting with a waterfall in the background and sl- slightly orgasmic look on her face. And then you've got flake, people in England will know, which is a sort of phallic-shaped uh, uh, chocolate bar, you know. And then general stuff would be just uh, you'll have lots of stuff with friends together consuming a product with the implication being that if you buy this product, you'll have lots of friends and then... Someone pointed out to me, I think it was one of my students, because I bring up advertising quite a lot during my classes. They said, oh, yeah, whenever you see car adverts, they're always on the open road. You know, you never never see cars advertised with someone stuck in traffic in the middle of the city, obviously. (laughs) Well, the the only time you would do is if you're trying to sell a car that perhaps fits into small spaces or something like that. But, yeah, but by and large, yes, right, they're on the open road. They're in these exotic locations and people having a fantastic time and living the high life, exactly. That's it. So, I mean, some of it's quite blatant and... Some of it's more subtle. I mean, some of it you might say is fairly harmless, but I, th- I think we're going to get on to the more sinister aspect of it later on. But uh... Yeah. Well, talking about the sexual element to all this, I've come across examples of adverts where the actual product that's being sold doesn't just have, you know, a, a rather attractive model next to it, but now you have the product, obviously because you can Photoshop things so easily, you know, the product is actually in the shape of the model, which is rather interesting. You know, it's got so far that now you are completely objectifying this exaggeration of the female form and identifying that with the product being sold you know so you might have a a well-known beer with its label and brand logo all morphed into the shape of this female form so you're not you're not so much selling beer by association with sex you're almost identifying it with sex yeah absolutely i mean i think i think really it's just it's got more and more blatant it's got less and less to do with the product i think as as i said we'll we'll see that um, I've just got some other 
very short things, but just other techniques if you're interested. Yeah, because what we're doing here, I think it's fair to say that we're building up a kind of impression of the kinds of things that we're going to talk about, because people are obviously very familiar with these kinds of things. But if we explore yeah. these in this kind of impressionistic way, then we'll be making some deeper points about it later on, as I say, particularly in connection with Edward Bernays. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, just a few things. Uh, you often see things like recommended by doctors, and obviously there'll be a picture of a doctor who's probably an actor. That thing about doctors being trusted, basically, and then um, limited stocks. What got me thinking without that is this funny paradox of humans. We, Well, most people like to be part of a crowd, but we also like to be unique and, and exclusive as well. So I think the idea of limited stocks, a bit like the Marmite, it, it buys into the idea that you can be in some sort of exclusive club. Oh, you mean like the, the limited edition of a yeah. bottle of wine or something like that? Yeah, limited stocks or that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, the strange thing about that is I remember that way back, my parents used to like voxels. Mm. I'm not sure I was ever very keen on them, but uh, they used to constantly have voxels. And I remember them buying one on one occasion. And it, I think it said a limited edition or something like that. And what was it? A... I don't know what it was, a, a voxel, a voxel victor or something <laughs> way back. But it was, yeah, it was this limited edition. But all it was was just, I think you could have a different colour from usual. And of course it had a little printed limited edition at the back. Well, so what? But I suppose it made some people feel they were, perhaps even my parents feel that they were buying mm. into something special. It clearly wasn't special. Yeah, yeah. Um, other ones, <laughs> quite interesting. Uh, a lot of this is about language. When you see something advertised as part of a nutritious breakfast, which part? I mean, you could sprinkle sawdust on a nutritious breakfast and the sawdust would be part of a nutritious breakfast. So. Yes, it's when they, they sell these things and say, oh, it's, this is useful for reducing cholesterol or something as part of a calorie-controlled diet. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it depends entirely upon what else you do with your diet, exactly. Yeah. In fact, um, I wanted to mention something about this five-a-day business, which is mm. absolutely massive, isn't it? and advertisers jumping on this straight away, so they say, well, you know, our product is one of your five-a-day for people not in the UK or from the UK. This is the idea that you're supposed to have five portions of fruit or vegetables each day. So any product that gives you one of your portions, you see, is a good product. And whether it's also full of fat and sugar is another matter. Um, we have a friend who is a patent lawyer, and uh, she knows somebody who was on this committee that was deciding this five-a-day business. So this person was sat on, on this decision. They were basically pulling numbers out of thin air. You know, they were basically thinking, like, well, four doesn't sound quite enough. Seven or eight sounds too many, and it's got to be an odd number because everything, you know, like in flower arranging, you have an odd number of flowers. It just feels right. So they chose the number five. So there's no apparently no scientific basis to that whatsoever. It's just it sounds good, and you know it's generally good advice to eat fruit and vegetables. But you know people go on and on about five a day, and of course it's fantastic for these advertisers to jump on that bandwagon. Well, funnily enough, I had some notes about that as well because I, I said I live in Spain. I have actually lived in England permanently for over a decade. And when I go back, it's very interesting to see things that you can notice. And I noticed this a few years ago. And first of all, I'm thinking, why do we need anyone to tell us how much fruit and vegetables to eat? I mean, why can't we make that call ourselves? Mm. But the thing is, it doesn't even tell you, does it? It just says portions. Or what's a portion anyway? Exactly. Or do you have just one slice of an apple? Is that a portion? Yeah. And I mean, I start to get really annoyed at people I know and stuff going on about it. I'm just, it's one of those perfect examples of something that's just been given to you. It's completely and utterly unnecessary. The other thing was that this is absolutely no word of a lie. I took my nephew swimming a few years ago, one of the times I was back, and they had five a day plastered on a on a vending machine, presumably because they were selling fruit juice or something. You know, and I mean, do a bit of research into fruit juice. You'll find it's not got much to do with fruit. So. <laughs> 
Should I just carry on with a few more techniques? I mean, you, yeah, sure. You sure. know why they have peanuts and crisps next to the bar as bar snacks? Oh, next to the bar? You mean in, in a pub? Yeah, yeah. Well, peanuts. presumably, so that when you're going to buy your beer, you see the peanuts and crisps and think, oh, yeah, I feel hungry now. Yeah, well, they give you a dry mouth. That's what it is. Uh, peanuts give you a dry mouth, so you... There you go. I hadn't thought that one through. But, yes, that makes complete sense, of course, because it's the salt content, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's it, yeah. Uh, there's other stuff. I mean... Um, I notice this a lot in Italy. In supermarkets, they move items around randomly, which, of course, means you have to walk around for longer to find the item that used to be in one place. Mm-hmm. One which uh, I think you'll find quite amusing. You know, the idea of when you have, for example, something is £2 each and then 3 for £5, so you make a, a small discount by buying more. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in a lot of cases, you're going to end up buying three where you only really need one, so you're not necessarily saving money. But And then it goes bad because you've bought too much and you can't actually use it. Yeah, that's it, yeah, depending on the product. Mm. I read about this fellow, uh, it was in somewhere really obscure, like Holland or Belgium or one of those countries. He had a shop and he obviously had a sense of humour as well, and he did a little experiment where he had something like two euros each, three for six euros, which obviously doesn't save you any money. And then he even did uh, something like, uh, let's say, for example, three euros each, three for ten euros, so you actually get up paying more. And he reported that people actually went for it, you know, because they obviously didn't stop and think. Perfect example of this idea of just trigger words, trigger ideas being enough without anyone actually literally doing the maths in this place. Well, indeed, I can believe that. I don't know whether it's done deliberately, but we have noticed a couple of times in various supermarkets where that phenomenon has happened, where you actually buy in bulk and you end up paying more for it. And we've often thought, well, that must just be a mistake. But perhaps it's not. Perhaps that is actually an attempt to fool people. I don't know. I don't want to pronounce upon that. But we have noticed that occasionally happening. Well, I'm amazed it's actually in a commercial supermarket. Yes, it has happened a few times. Well, you say actually pay more or you pay the same? Well, we didn't actually do it. We did the basic maths there on the spot and thought, actually, it's not in our interest to do that. Let's just buy them separately because it's cheaper. Unbelievable. Okay. Yeah, um, there was a book I came across. I haven't read it, but I've read bits of it that are on the internet by a gentleman called Paco Underhill, which is a great name. It's called Why We Buy the Science of Shopping. So I'll add it to my list of about 150 books that I've got to read. Well, let's let's be a bit sort of grumpy old men about this kind of thing for a while, shall we? <laughs> Why not? Um, so, uh, you know, having a, a daughter now who's uh, 11 years old, it's really annoying going to a supermarket and find that, you know, all the sweets are just at the right height level, exactly parallel with her eye. You're there for ages, of course, waiting for this queue to go. And then she's going, oh, can I have this? Can I have that? Parents all over the world experience this. But it has to be said, it is extremely annoying. Yeah. Um, Another thing that annoys me in supermarkets is the deceptive packaging. You know, you're trying to look for something, say, free-range chicken or something, or even an organic product, and you tend to associate that with green colour because that's what producers tend to use. And so then there are these copycat producers. They produce something which isn't organic and it's not free range or whatever. And yet they try to kid you into that. So you you find yourself sort of picking it up and almost about to put it in your basket. And then you think, just a minute. And some of these products are very close to each other physically as well. So particularly annoying and deceptive. (laughs) And while on this sort of complaining about these things, we do use a loyalty card. But we're trying to wean ourselves off using the supermarket as much as possible. And uh, it's actually an improvement what they've had this particular supermarket before where they had a sort of voucher system 
you would have to collect these vouchers, voucher number one in the first week, voucher number two in the second, voucher number three in the third week, and then you'd spend that in the following week. And it was all these little narrow windows of activity. And if you got any of them wrong, you'd lose your... So it meant you had to go back those particular weeks. And I felt sort of controlled by it, you know, so I didn't really like it and I uh, wasn't very keen on collecting these things. It sounds like it's adding extra stress as well. Mm. You have to try and remember the days for a fairly small saving. Still, I thought I'd mention it because it annoyed me. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. felt slightly controlled by it, or at least there was an attempt to control me by it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I've got some other stuff on shopping malls, which is quite classic stuff, because a shopping mall, all these sort of tricks are all concentrated in one area. So you really, when you walk into a shopping mall or shopping centre, as you say in England, you're really walking into one massive trap. Yeah, <laughs> one yes. massive series of traps. So I'll just give you a few... Um, most people, because the majority of people are right-handed and sort of right-oriented, they put a lot of tempting offers on your right because most people turn right when they turn into um, shopping centres or department stores. But interestingly, they a lot of them don't put the really good stuff right in front of you because apparently people need time to acclimatise when, when they walk into a department store. You need 10 seconds to get used to the new, your new surroundings. It was very interesting that they'd uh, gone into that much detail. You know? Absolutely. And they got yes. some stuff that people would be familiar about, which is to do with the uh, coffee smells and bun smells. They always make those more prominent than they often um, cook uh, buns or heat cinnamon buns right near the entrance so you get this lovely smell. They also apparently burn sugar and cinnamon to make the smell linger, which I thought was interesting. Well, I have wondered about Subway because we have one locally and when you go past it, the smell is so strong. I do think to myself, they must be deliberately piping that out because I mean, no, no other establishment is like that. Yeah, and then you've got other stuff in department stores, the, the restaurants usually on the top floor because people... Obviously, if they enter on the ground floor, they're likely to go up and they tend to keep going up and up unless there's anything particularly interesting on the basement. And so, of course, they'll get to a point where they'll they'll get hungry and thirsty or, well, in my opinion, they'll think they're hungry and thirsty. That's another story. And then they get to the restaurant on the top floor to get all that lovely food to sate their hunger. Clearance items are usually at the back because when you spot a bargain, it probably puts you in a good mood. You have to walk through lots of more expensive items to get to the clearance items. Well, the thing about placing things, I've noticed for years how you go straight into the supermarket and what you find the first thing is a load of vegetables and fruit on offer. And I've wondered whether that's just to give the impression of just how you know how health conscious we are, what a lovely place this is. But of course, what's so annoying about it is that you then buy those things first of all, delicate things, and then you go through the rest of your shopping and you end up squashing your vegetables or you have to spend ages rearranging those things. But, but that annoyance mustn't be so great that it puts people off going. It must be in the interests of the supermarkets to give this sort of healthful impression when you go through the door well there's one one theory that i read um they do that because the people will pick up fruit and uh, people being the strange animals they are they'll feel proud of themselves that they're eating something healthy so they'll allow themselves um what's the word guilty pleasure they'll allow themselves a guilty pleasure that's very plausible indeed that's very plausible yeah um, there's some other stuff uh, in supermarket aisles. The staple items, just essential items, are often in the middle of the aisle. So whichever way you enter from, you're going to have to go past luxury items to get to the staple stuff. And I mean, I haven't checked that, you know, physically myself, but uh, it seems to make sense. And then I, I, I really wanted to tell you about uh, mineral water. I was curious to find what the most expensive bottled water. Are you ready for this? The most Go on, expensive water where you're actually just paying purely for the water is one called Veen Velva, which is $23 a bottle. $23, Julian, for water. What size of bottle do you know? 
It looks sort of fairly standard. I, I don't know, maybe a litre. I, I can't remember. Yeah. It's more and more expensive. And obviously, if you go to a hotel... Well, more expensive than that. Yeah, but they're actually... You're paying more for the bottle than the water, and you've got crystal-decked Hello Kitty-branded <laughs> F-I-L-L-I-C-O. It's a water bottle that you're actually paying for rather than water. And then here's, uh, this is absolutely hilarious. I hope this isn't made up. You can get concentrated water, which comes from uh, off the coast of Hawaii, and it's it's designed to be diluted with uh, real water. It goes for sixteen dollars seventy five an ounce. So, oh, that's got to be a prank, though. Surely, I don't know. I, I checked; it wasn't the onion, and it wasn't the onion dot com. So. Yeah, but it, it could still be a commercial prank. So the idea that you, you know that you'd buy that for somebody's birthday or something as a joke. I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe we could check that, or your listeners could check that. But uh, well, we've got this joke in our family where you can buy powdered water, and you just uh, add water to. Rehydrate it. Oh yeah, <laughs> and there were years ago. I understand that somebody was selling Californian Air in cans. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. But those yeah. sorts of things do exist, and presumably people buy them to give to their mates as a joke. It was an interesting thing that this is a bit tangential, but it's to do with water, and that's that uh, Alex Jones did. Uh, I don't know about five years ago or something, where I think it was to do really with getting people to realise that they were sort of taking what experts said on trust to do with CO two. I think in global warming, I think that was the idea anyway. So you know, there's this terrible pollutant called CO two. So uh, he did the same thing with water, and I uh, was asking people, did they realise that there was dihydrogen oxide in the water? So people were saying, oh no, I didn't realise that. Oh, how terrible. Of course, you know, <laughs> he just wasn't letting on that that was H2O. But uh, he made his point. It's quite funny, actually. Yeah, well, there's a fellow called Mark Dice, who's a sort of an activist in America, and he, he walks along beaches or wherever asking Americans things, and he, he'll plant an idea in their mind and then ask them about it. He'll say, oh, do you hear, oh you've heard, I guess, about Obama finding it, WMDs in Iraq. <laughs> just taking a sort of, you know, sort of WMD's idea and the idea of Obama and putting them together and people say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm very concerned about that, yeah. And I think that necessarily means that they think it's true. It's, it's just almost this thing that responding to ideas that are given to you, which is going to be a theme and has been a theme of all the stuff we've talked about in the past. Mm. Really. Well, yes, and you sent me a link to some stuff by Charlie Veach, which mm. was very illustrative of this kind of thing just holding up signs saying, you know, move along or move to the right, just sheer authority, no reason given for anything. And there were some people who were just obeying the sign that was held up. Yeah, amazing, really. Yeah, yeah. I've got quite a good example of people being led, if you're interested, because it actually refers to Tony Gosling, who was on your show. Yes. So, I mean, this is just a very good example of planting an idea in people's minds. He gave an anecdote on another interview he did. Um, he used to do phone-ins on the Radio Solon, which is in Portsmouth in the south of England. And on the first day of the original Gulf War in 1990, because they were near Portsmouth, which is associated with the army, the military, they decided to have a phone-in asking people their opinions on, um, on the first Gulf War. So um, the producer basically said, oh, give us your opinions. Uh, do, you, do you have positive or negative opinions? And um, he was waiting for the switchboard to start lighting up. And there was absolutely nothing. And uh, after about five minutes, he turned to the producer and said, oh, you know, what's going on here? And the producer said with a, a trace of irony, you do realize we haven't told them what to think yet. So basically what they did was they just rejigged the script, so to speak giving people triggers for their opinions like do you think that Saddam Hussein is a dangerous man they're still asking the same question but giving people triggers giving people something to respond to mm. and Tony Gosling said he was gobsmacked that suddenly the switchboard lit up that's just a perfect example it's not so much the content it's just 
if you give people something to work with rather than making them or forcing them to come up with something original, then they respond to it. And again, I'm not saying people are stupid. You know, we discussed this when we did the change in the discourse. In my opinion, they've been conditioned to respond rather than to produce. Yes, that's a good point. And of course, I think we also have to recognise that, you know, even those of us who are keyed in to this kind of thing, we're Mm. still being manipulated in various ways that we're completely unaware of. And I think the more you look into this, the more that becomes clear. So I don't think, you know, we're saying, oh, we're great. You know, we're aware of everything that's going on. And I'm sitting here saying, absolutely not. I'm quite convinced there are ways in which I'm being manipulated. And I haven't got a clue where that is. And I'm sure that, you know, the more I look into it, the more I will find and probably will never come to the end of it. So it's a kind of situation that we're all sitting in. We're all equal on this one, in a sense. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm not complacent about it at all, but certainly awareness limits the influence. So there's no doubt about that. I think a lot of people ask, does advertising work? Because they don't really believe that they would see sort of a picture of a Big Mac on a wall and then immediately go straight to McDonald's. But uh, I thought I might just give you a few numbers, which are quite scary, really, about how much money is spent on advertising and how much influence it can have. And this was actually from 2011. Apparently, £16.1 billion was spent on ads in the UK. And, of course, one of the things that I got from reading one of Chomsky's books was how much newspapers uh, and TV as well rely on advertising. You know, I always assume that newspapers got a lot of money from people buying the newspaper. But I think the advertising revenue is far more significant than the actual price of the newspaper. And just to give you a good example, there was an MP called Michael Meacher who was in Blair's government and resigned over Iraq. He gave a quote to The Guardian saying that the war on terrorism is bogus, which, you know, to the alternative movement is not a very controversial idea, but I suppose in the mainstream it is. And apparently um, that lost The Guardian uh, a million pounds in advertising subsidies almost instantly. And a lot of the advertisers threatened a a total boycott if, if The Guardian ever printed anything like that again. If that can happen to The Guardian, then you... Try and imagine what would happen if, say, a regional paper printed something like that. You know, it could finish them. That's why, you know, we never really see any references to 9-11 or in England 7-7. It's just off the table because they're just too scared of losing advertising revenues. Absolutely, yes. You mentioned Chomsky, and of course this very much fits with his observation that people often think of advertising the wrong way around. The advertising model that certainly was in my mind before I read Chomsky on this was the idea that, you know, the advertiser buys airtime, say, from the TV company, and then the TV company makes its programs. But Chomsky pointed out that the TV company is actually selling an audience to the advertiser. And so the audience kind of is the commodity being offered for sale to the business that wants to sell the stuff. You know, that allows us to see that the TV company will therefore mold its programming. The newspaper will mold what it prints so as to maximise and tailor the audience according to the needs of the advertiser. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, when you're watching TV programmes, particularly in countries where there's lots of ads, the ads without realising will will be tailored or they certainly won't have sort of negative messages. I mean, one example someone said that if there's lots of car ads, there won't be in a show where someone's having problems with their car, you know. (laughs) So they don't want to give any idea that any of the cars that are being advertised could ever possibly break down. You know, it's, it's one of those. And in some ways, you know, it's objectionable. But I think what's objectionable about it is the way they play on our general ignorance about this so i mean you know if i wanted to consciously buy into this situation so i wanted to watch a program that would be okay i'm I'm saying 
I'm going to sell my attention, I'm going to sell my time to the TV company because I want to watch the programme they've produced. And so if I'm making that transaction consciously, that's absolutely fine. But what I don't like, of course, is, is the idea that people just get into this sort of passive alpha wave brain state or whatever and just sit in there and don't realise that actually there's an exchange going on there with their time and their attention that they're not even aware of. So that seems to me to be exploitation. You know, if only everybody could be aware that they're actually making that transaction then it wouldn't be nearly as objectionable as it is in fact. Yeah, well, this is one of the dangers of, of in a lot of houses. The TV is just on permanently, and it's not even that you're watching it. In a way, that's more dangerous, because if you're concentrating on a program that you really want to watch, at least your attention is centred on something. But it's when the TV's on and you're doing something else, and the TV's on almost just like a friend. You know? yes. This is where it's dangerous, because you, your, your attention is scattered, and you do get into this state. You know, and if you haven't got anything that you're actually focusing on, then I think you're even more malleable. So, um, you know, it's a form of hypnosis, really. There is a Christian philosopher actually called Douglas Gruthus, and he expresses concern about the way TV manipulates people in the sense of getting people to stop thinking. Programs are often produced with very short scenes and quickly flashing images and changing colours and different angles and these sorts of things. And I've noticed it particularly with children's TV, which is quite disturbing. And his opinion about this is it actually works against critical thinking because you've got so your mind is so overloaded with all these images and sounds that you can't process them properly, and that makes you more susceptible to whatever message wants to come through on the TV there. And I think he's got a good point actually, and he he looks at it as a kind of crude version of postmodernism in the sense you know postmodernism being that idea, you know all meta narratives, the big narratives about everything are now suspect, and of course there is some truth in postmodernism. I don't want to be completely negative about it. I think it's actually a useful tool in some ways for us to be critical of the things that we believe. But nevertheless, when it's taken in that really crude way to break everything up so that there's no narrative at all, so you can't even understand what's going on, then you are susceptible to any message that the TV producers want to throw at you. I think he's got a good point there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it shortens your attention span and, and then you get more impatient by things which do take more attention you know i mean i have seen comparisons about how many cuts are made in the average hollywood film in the 1940s compared to now and i mean you can probably imagine you know watch a film in the 1940s and you might find it quite refreshing even if the acting's terrible the camera's on something for much longer and it just follows people around whereas now i mean can you imagine how many cuts are in the average hollywood action film it must be in the thousands i imagine and, you know, that could be dismissed as just a matter of fashion. But I think, based upon the kinds of things that we're going to lead towards when we look at the sort of darker side of this, I think it's probably reasonable for us to think that it's not all just fashion. There is some design behind at least some of this. Mm. Yeah. Well, we have mentioned Edward Bernays, and I'm just wondering whether we should talk about him a little, because obviously he is a very little-known person, but a very important figure in this, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's nicknamed the father of public relations, but I actually tagged him the most influential man you've never heard of, Mm. because he did actually manage to get in Time magazine's 100 most influential men of the 20th century, but I'm sure if you ask the man on the street, you're Edward Bernays, I'm sure most people wouldn't have a clue. Mm. And he's famous for being the nephew of Sigmund Freud? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, he's actually the double nephew of Sigmund Freud, Mm. and he was especially proud of that, apparently. Um, He's known as the father of public relations, and public relations is basically uh, propaganda, given a nice-sounding name, because propaganda didn't actually used to have a negative connotation, but I think it was during the war, one of the wars, that it started to develop that, so public relations is basically an invented term. 
Particularly, I think it must have been the Second World War where that became particularly objectionable. Yeah, because when he wrote his book Propaganda, which was 1928, I think, I think the word yeah. was still a sort of neutral word. Absolutely. I guess the most famous quote, which I think comes right at the beginning of the book, which is, um, conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are moulded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we've never heard of. And I mean, that's in 1928, he's talking about an invisible government, and he's talking about people behind the scenes influencing us. So, you know, no conspiracies here, you know, sleep tight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how he starts the book, isn't it, actually? Yeah, it's actually the first paragraph, even the first words, but it's definitely right at the beginning. Um, yeah, and I think it's very instructive, actually, to take a look at Bernays's book, Propaganda, which mm. Noam Chomsky refers to as the real manual when it comes to these things. Mm. And so, you know, if we turn to the real manual here, you've already quoted from chapter one with that opening statement. Mm. And it's interesting in chapter five that he justifies this manipulation of the population by saying it's necessary because of mass production. He says, uh, quote, mass production is only profitable if its rhythm can be maintained, that is, if it can continue to sell its product in steady or increasing quantity. The result is that while under the handicraft or small unit system of production that was typical a century ago, demand created the supply, today supply must actively seek to create its corresponding demand. A single factory, potentially capable of supplying a whole continent with its particular products, cannot afford to wait until the public asks for its product. It must maintain constant touch through advertising and propaganda with the vast public in order to assure itself the continuous demand which alone will make its costly plant profitable. This entails a vastly more complex system of distribution than formerly. To make customers is the new problem. One must understand not only his own business, the manufacture of a particular product, but also the structure, the personality, the prejudices of a potentially universal public, unquote. So it's not that you're necessarily creating something that people need or that people even want to start with. Uh, what you're doing is, mm -hmm. first and foremost, creating a demand for whatever it is that you mm -hmm. want to sell. So whether people actually want it or not is, is irrelevant. You actually have to make people want whatever it is that you want to sell. And so this is a justification for manipulating people so that business can function in this mass-produced kind of way. And you do that, he says, by coming to understand what it is that motivates people on a deep level. Which takes me to chapter four, where he discusses the psychology of public relations. And uh, this is a, a fascinating quote. Men are rarely aware of the real reasons which motivate their actions. It is chiefly the psychologists of the school of Freud who have pointed out that many of man's thoughts and actions are compensatory substitutes for desires which he has been obliged to suppress. A thing may be desired not for its intrinsic worth or usefulness, but because he has unconsciously come to see in it a symbol of something else, the desire for which he is ashamed to admit to himself. A man buying a car may think he wants it for purposes of locomotion, whereas the fact may be that he would really prefer not to be burdened with it and would rather walk for the sake of his health. He may really want it because it is a symbol of social position, an evidence of his success in business, or a means of pleasing his wife. Unquote. So if you can come to understand what it is that deeply motivates people, then you tap into that. That will then allow you to sell people things which are not necessarily what they really want. 
They want them for other reasons. They don't want it because it's a car. They want it because it says something about themselves or something along those lines. So it's really deviously tapping into people's deep psychology. And especially if you can link that to sort of group psychology as well, how people are affected by how other people think of them. That's very powerful too. And there's a a great example of this here where Bernays talks about how to sell a piano and compares how one might have sold a piano in the past and how the new salesman does it. So let me quote from this. It's quite long, but I think it's very interesting. Quote, The old-fashioned propagandist, using almost exclusively the appeal of the printed word, tried to persuade the individual reader to buy a definite article immediately. This approach is exemplified in a type of advertisement which used to be considered ideal from the point of view of directness and effectiveness. You, perhaps with a finger pointing at the reader, buy O'Leary's rubber heels now. The advertiser sought, by means of reiteration and emphasis directed upon the individual, to break down or penetrate sales resistance. Although the appeal was aimed at 50 million persons, it was aimed at each as an individual. The new salesmanship has found it possible by dealing with men in the mass through their group formations to set up psychological and emotional currents which will work for him. Instead of assaulting sales resistance by direct attack, he is interested in removing sales resistance. Mm. He creates circumstances which will swing emotional currents so as to make for purchaser demand. If, for instance, I want to sell pianos, It is not sufficient to blanket the country with a direct appeal, such as, You, buy a Mozart piano now. It is cheap. The best (laughs) artists use it. It will last for years. The claims may all be true, but they are in direct conflict with the claims of other piano manufacturers and indirect competition with the claims of a radio or a motor car, each competing for the consumer's dollar. What are the true reasons why the purchaser is planning to spend his money on a new car instead of on a new piano? Because he has decided that he wants the commodity called locomotion more than he wants the commodity called music? Not altogether. He buys a car because it is, at the moment, the group custom to buy cars. The modern Mm. propagandist therefore sets to work to create circumstances which will modify that custom. He appeals perhaps to the home instinct which is fundamental. He will endeavour to develop public acceptance of the idea of a music room in the home. This he may do, for example, by organising an exhibition of period music rooms designed by well-known decorators who themselves exert an influence on the buying groups. He enhances the effectiveness and the prestige of these rooms by putting in them rare and valuable tapestries. Then, in order to create dramatic interest in the exhibit, he stages an event or ceremony. To this ceremony, key people, persons known to influence the buying habits of the public, such as a famous violinist, a popular artist, a society leader, are invited. These key persons affect the other groups, lifting the idea of the music room to a place in the public consciousness which it did not have before. The juxtaposition of these leaders and the idea which they are dramatising are then projected to the wider public through various publicity channels. Meanwhile, influential architects have been persuaded to make the music room an integral architectural part of their plans, with perhaps a specially charming niche in one corner for the piano. Less influential architects will, as a matter of course, imitate what is done by the men whom they consider masters of their profession. 
they, in turn, will implant the idea of the music room in the mind of the general public. The music room will be accepted because it has been made the thing. And the man or woman who has a music room, or has arranged a corner of the parlour as a musical corner, will naturally think of buying a piano. It will come to him as his own idea. Mm. Under the old salesmanship, the manufacturer said to the prospective purchaser, please buy a piano. The new salesmanship has reversed the process and caused the prospective purchaser to say to the manufacturer, please sell me a piano, unquote. Mm. Absolutely yeah. fascinating. So the producer has come to understand the psychology of the person, mm. understand the psychology of the group, and has manipulated that so that those people now desire what the seller wants to sell such that those prospective customers are now saying, please sell me what it is mm. that you're making. And it's been created by the seller themselves. It's absolutely fascinating to see that back in 1928 and to recognise the extent to which that foreshadows the modern world in which we live and, and suffer these things on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, some of the stuff that Bernays, a few of his greatest hits, um, he's largely responsible for women smoking, or certainly women smoking in public. Smoking in public was a huge taboo, and actually women were risking an arrest if they were seen smoking in public. Uh, he organised an event at the 1929 Easter Parade. He arranged for some rich debutantes at a certain time to hold up cigarettes. And he told the press that they were suffragettes, and he came up with the term torches of freedom. Now, of course, a cigarette is a phallic symbol as a representation of a male part of the anatomy. But put the two together, and this idea of torches of freedom... It's obviously one of those terms which uh, would catch on with people. You know, women have never looked back in terms of uh, smoking. So I don't know if we can hold him completely responsible. That might be a bit too sort of simplistic, but he certainly was influential in that regard. Yeah, and so he was tapping into his uncle's theories, wasn't he, there, That's by exploiting this phallic dimension here and also exploiting the idea that people would believe in freedom. So freedom's a good thing. So if something is touted as being a torch of freedom, then how could you possibly be against it? Because if you were to go against it, you'd be against freedom. Absolutely. And, of course, you know, what's one of the big symbols of America, you know, Statue of Liberty, mm -hmm. she's holding up the torch and can't deny that he was a clever chap. He was apparently a workaholic as well. I, read an in, I listened to an interview by his daughter, Anne Bernays, who said, you know, he certainly wasn't a conventional father. He wasn't the warmest person. He was just work-obsessed. His work was everything. Mm. Another thing, um, he's also largely responsible for the fact that bacon and eggs is, is a staple of uh, an American breakfast and, I, I guess, lots of other countries. Because apparently till about the 1950s, I think it was, Americans used, used to eat a fairly light breakfast, which we'd probably call a continental breakfast now. The Beech Nut Packing Company asked him to publicize bacon and try and increase the sales. And he managed to get a lot of physicians, 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 <laughs> physicians to, uh, to recommend a hearty breakfast. Now, of course, a hearty breakfast, a full breakfast is a fairly vague term, but Apparently the body loses energy during sleep, so uh, you need something to bolster it when you wake up. He took this idea, and it's not clear exactly how, it, how he got it round to bacon and eggs, but I guess that's a good example of something that's quite heavy. So you, you take it from the fact that physicians um, recommend a hearty breakfast to physicians somehow recommending bacon and eggs, and then it, 
again, it's now become a staple. It's been a staple for, you know, 60, 70 yeah. years now. So. And bacon sales went up at the time, apparently. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and this was his idea of the third-party authority, wasn't it, that you appeal to this third party who people recognise as having authority over their lives in some way, and if you can get them on board, then people will just follow suit. Yeah, and I mean, once these things get established, it's very hard to get them unestablished. I mean, another good example, popcorn. I mean, why do people eat popcorn at the cinema? Why do they eat popcorn instead of chocolate? There's a good reason for that, you know, which I'll I'll let people research it themselves. But once that association is made, you know, like, you know, obviously people invite people around their houses to watch movies and then they get the popcorn in, you know. The central point, as I said, is once it's established, you know, it's too much effort to unestablish it. (laughs) But, um, yeah, we're going to get into slightly more sinister territory now. Mm, Um, Bernays was very involved in the, the coup that happened in Guatemala in 1954. And just very briefly... The United Fruit Company was very much in charge of that country. And under the previous, under the dictatorship they had at that time, they were getting tax exemptions. And uh, they were actually in control of the rail and postal services, which is quite a big deal you know, for a fruit company to have that much influence in a country. As happened in uh, a lot of places, particularly in Latin America, anyone who was left-leaning uh, socialist was immediately painted as a communist. It didn't really take a lot for um, Bernays to persuade people that Arbenz, who was the democratically elected, newly elected leader, was a, quote, communist. It's incredible how powerful that word is. Of course, we've got the word terrorist now, but it's another story. Basically, uh, the Dulles brothers, who were extremely shady, I think at that time one of them was head of the CIA and one of them was secretary of state, they actually had shares in United Fruit. So they, they had a special motivation to get them back in control. Yeah, they painted Arbenz as a communist and there was a military coup. You know, this military junta were touted as freedom fighters stopping the spread of communism. And, uh, and this, isn't it amazing? this was CIA-sponsored, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, isn't it amazing how nothing's changed? If you, that last statement I've just made, if you just substitute the word uh, terrorist for communist, I mean, nothing's changed. <laughs> that's a really good point. I mean, the dark side of this coup is that it triggered basically 40 years of civil war and hundreds of thousands of deaths. You know, that's nothing to be sneezed at. You know, and I mean, Bernays has never really been criticised or held accountable for this, mainly because not many people have ever heard of him. And mm. I did see a clip of him on the David Letterman show as a very old man, you know, shortly before he died. And of course, he was painted as a sort of sweet, eccentric, slightly sly man, you know, always oh, making us buy things we don't need. You know, it was all very lighthearted. But, you know, I mean, David Letterman's supposed to be edgy, but, you know, he had Tony Blair on there and it was all, all smiles and everything, you know. <laughs> absolutely no sort of probing of where this was a few years after Iraq so that's perhaps not unexpected basically Bernays' legacy was tapping into unconscious desires and really just finding gaps in people's lives and I mean that's another theme of advertising is tapping into this emptiness that we never really acknowledge in our lives there's something missing from most of our lives clearly it's there because it's it's a gap that advertising seems yeah. to fill very nicely you know absolutely I think it's very instructive, actually, to read a very short paper of his called Engineering Consent, just eight pages long, and it really does tell you quite a lot about the guy. Um, I'll just say a few things about it. He had this phrase, engineering consent, and this was the idea that in order for a modern democracy to function, in his opinion, it was necessary for those people in charge who were supposedly fit to govern to, as it says, to engineer the cooperation of the people and he justifies this as being the kind of thing that's quite acceptable to do in a free society 
you know, we are able to use our powers in various ways in a free society. So those who have the power to do such, why should they not exercise that power? You know, it's a free country kind of thing. And he says that, you know, it's necessary to do this because by and large people are not very educated. So they can't see the whole picture. So it needs those who are, again, supposedly <laughs> better placed to tell them how to think. But what I found interesting is that he says even if people were better educated, in fact, he even says if there was a perfect education system, it would still be necessary to tell those people how to think or persuade those people to think in a certain kind of way, which, you know, sort of gives the impression there that he is talking from this uh, very elitist position because he, he never calls into question those who are calling the shots, their abilities. They're clearly always right in their decisions. So I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, I'd agree with you. It's very elitist. Okay, Anthony, you said that you'd like to talk about something to do with uh, children and advertising and how they're targeted in various ways. Do you want to share with us what you found out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, this is the scariest part of all because with adults, although we've already agreed that we're all kind of a bit malleable and vulnerable and we should accept that, I mean, with kids, we really are getting into a dark area. And I mean, some of the stuff I've found... uh, it's mainly taken from a documentary called Consuming Kids. It was made in about 2008, I think. It's called Consuming Kids, The Commercialization of Childhood. So um, numbers, first of all, kids spend $40 billion a year. This is in America, by the way. This documentary is all based on um, America. They're having more and more influence on adult spending, and adult spending totals around $700 billion a year. So, it's and is, is this through the, the nag factor, which was in that documentary, The Corporation, they made a big thing about that? Yeah, that's one of the things. And I wanted to talk about this lovely lady called Lucy Hughes of Initiative Media, who, who's a co-creator of the nag factor. And they did actually include the clip from The Corporation. And Lucy, uh, with a big smile on her face, says something to the effect of, well, I don't know if it's ethical or not, but at Initiative, we're trying to move products and if we can sell them to kids, then we'll have them as adults for life, and we will have done our job. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I was paraphrasing her, but uh, she said that with a big smile on her face. So um, good for Lucy. Mm, I think yeah. really the, the significant part of this is um, what happened in the late 70s and early 80s, because till the late 70s, there was actually the Federal Trade Commission actually banned ads to children under eight years old. They had actually talked about the deceptive quality of it, which uh, I think we'd all agree with. But in 1980, there was a wonderful thing called the Improvement Act. And again, don't you just love these yes. names? <laughs> so that made everything much better, presumably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a bit like Operation Iraqi Freedom. It's about as convincing as <laughs> that. Yeah, and this, this was passed by Congress uh, with a huge majority. And it said that the Federal Trade Commission no longer had any authority on, it, on advertising. And the more I sort of look at modern politics over the last 30, 40 years, the more that the 80s is really, it seems it really shaped the modern world with all this deregulation. And Ronald Reagan, when he, when he was uh, president, was, they had a very clever campaign slogan, which was that government is the problem, playing into this thing that the public don't really believe what the government said. So what we got instead of the government was we got corporations, which of course arguably are even worse. This was really the big change that happened. And from there, you know, the floodgates were open and it was just open house for any kind of advertising to children they feel like. According to this documentary, in the last 30 years, spending of children has grown 35% every single year. It's an astonishing statistic. Yeah, I was just, just thinking about what you were saying about governments and corporations there, and often people would say psychopaths get into positions of political power. But actually, the observation has been made that uh, corporations themselves function rather psychopathically, actually, <laughs> because they are legally obliged to 
make money on behalf of their shareholders, and they will do so, therefore, at all costs, or all environmental costs, all moral costs, because they're, well, they have to. Yeah, that's right, yeah, and of course, this corporate personhood, and in the corporation, this documentary, they did uh, do a psychological study of the corporation and found out that they were psychopaths. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I think one thing that really hit me with that was the fact that they can actually factor in breaking the law. So if it's beneficial to break the law, if it makes money, then they'll say, yeah, that's a cost that we can afford to pay, and they go ahead and break the law and pay the fine. Good business model. <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean, if, if the public knew how much corporations paid in fines, they'd be amazed. I mean, I don't have the statistics to hand, but... You know, it's hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. Yeah, so in this documentary, they just give you a few examples. They talk about how basically everything is branded, and and they gave the example of bed sheets or duvets. So these children are basically going to bed with the characters and waking up with the characters. You know, the first thing they see in the morning is this sort of smiley cartoon character looking at them from their duvet, you know. Well, you know, one thing that really occurs to me is that, you know, we have this popular band called One Direction, which, you know, can't bear, but there you go, that's Mm, another matter. And uh, what I've noticed is there's so much merchandise connected with that band. You almost see more merchandise than you actually hear of them. And I can't help thinking they are created, really. Their function is to create the opportunity to sell merchandise. That's what they're about. That's right. Well, they said something about that. They said that instead of inserting merchandising into TV shows, for example, or pop groups, it's going the opposite way. And and, uh, there's an old cartoon He-Man created essentially to sell the toy. So the toy came before the product, before the TV show, or in this case, the pop group. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's now in America, there's school trips to shopping malls ads on the radio on school buses you know the kids take the bus to school and there's ads playing on the radio conferences of youth marketing other things you you know what focus groups are they have focus groups with one-way mirrors and they're actually watching kids reactions to things you know i mean it's very scientific i mean they're not messing around and I mean, there's other stuff they were talking about watching them in the bath. I mean, how sinister is that? Seeing how they play with toys and play with shampoo. I mean, it was... That's very Bernays-like, isn't it, that you should know your target consumers very well, know what makes them tick. Yeah, absolutely right. And then there's a thing called neuromarketing, which, as you can imagine, is to do with a brain, and they hook a child up to an MRI and see what lights up in their brain. I mean, can you believe this? You know, this is taking it to more extremes than, you know, I've got a fairly open mind, but I didn't realize it got as extreme as this. You know, and they really refer to these marketers as predators, which uh, is really true if you think about it. I mean, they're, they're preying on these children. When you're trying to get into a child's brain, I mean, you've gone beyond its only business. You know what I mean? It's, yes, I agree with you. Yes, it's most unpleasant. Yeah, and I mean, what they're really selling to them is not only products, they're selling values. And, of course, it's this value of consumption. And there's a very good quote in it. Um, you know the expression, you are what you eat, for, for example. Mm. Now they say you are what you buy, basically. I, I wonder how, how these marketers, mm. what exactly is driving them? Yeah. Money, or is it? Are they trying to fill a gap, just like they're doing with consumers, you know? Because uh, we've talked before that there, there seems to be this gap in people's lives that products do fill. They fill, but they don't satisfy. No, well, that's the thing with advertising. The whole thing is that it, it's yes. it's putting you within reach of this perfection, but then it always pushes it further and further away. Yes, that's right. Well, it might be worth discussing why this gap exists. Why is this space that always needs to be filled by something, either whether it's food or, uh, you know? Yeah, there are different gaps, aren't there, I suppose? I mean, there are... I mean, I could go into sort of theological mode and say that I think there's a... Me as well with spiritual. uh, spiritual. Well, that's right. It's a similar kind of idea that uh, I I think we are constitutionally 
designed with that kind of spiritual gap. From my perspective, I would say that we need to have that consciousness of God in order to be fully human beings. That's what we're supposed to be. And insofar as we push God away from our lives, we're not at home. We're not authentically human. And so we look for other things to fill that. Right. And I'm quite sure that along comes the propagandist <laughs> to say, well, look, this will fill it. And, you know, there are various other desires that we have that can be exploited. So we want to be liked, well considered, you know, fit into society, etc. And so that can be exploited and used as a way of plugging the wrong hole, as it were, plugging the theological hole. Um, so you can be persuaded to chase a lifestyle and think that you're therefore authenticating yourself but you're really not, because it's necessary to have this spiritual component to your life. And there's no way that the advertiser is going to tell you that, unless they want to sell you some sort of spiritual course. Well, yeah, yeah, they might be. Well, actually, funny enough, KFC, one of their slogans was serving up soul, S-O-U-L. I don't know, what, what's a chicken McNugget got to do with anyone's soul? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think they're clever, because uh, in a way that, you know, I saw an advert, uh, we're all one, you know, they're just putting these slogans that hit the right chords with people and then just putting them next to a product that's got absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah, didn't uh, Coca-Cola do something like that as well? Maybe Coca-Cola, yeah. It's just this thing where there's no direct association between the product and the slogan anymore, really. I mean, there is with some brands, but mm. you don't even need to do that anymore. You know, you just put a slogan that people will like next to a product that's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, uh, there was also this talk by Neil Sanders, which you recommended, and I don't know what conference it was at, but he was making some mm. really, really good points in there. I know that you want to say something about it. The conference was called AV Alternative View, and it was uh, AV5, organized by a chap called Ian R. Crane, who's quite well known in the alternative media. Yeah, Neil Sanders he had a really good approach. He approached it as a spoof marketing seminar, so he was playing the role of a marketing guy, telling the audience how to manipulate the, the world had heard, as Walter Lippmann would call them. But, I mean, there's some brilliant stuff. Um, what came up on the screen at the beginning was Neil Sanders' BSC, SSC. And, of course, BSC, you immediately think is Bachelor of Science. And he said, well, actually, BSC is Bronze Swimming Certificate and SSC is Silver Swimming Certificate. Yeah, a lot of it was politicians. If you're, if you're a politician and you want to appear human, you need to stand next to workers. And there was all these clips of, uh, I think it was Obama and David Cameron, standing next to people wearing hard hats in factories and people wearing wellies, Wellington boots. Though. If you have a politician pictured next to someone who looks like they do a lot of work, in the public's mind, even just that, they make an association. And then uh, he was saying um, another way to appeal to the proletariat is to say that you grew up on a rough estate with the sound of gunshots nearby. And then they cut to a uh, very posh, the sound of gunshots is hunting. And of course, it's someone who grew up in the upper class. His kind of thesis that he, he keeps coming back to during this talk is that products are sold on an emotional rather than a rational basis. I wanted to throw in another quote from Bernays. This is also from Propaganda, where he talks about babies and actually gives some advice on politicians. So he says, you know, the candidate who takes babies on his lap and has his photograph taken is doing a wise mm. thing emotionally. If this act epitomizes a definite plank in his platform, kissing babies, if it is worth anything, must be used as a symbol for a baby policy, and it must be synchronized with a plank in the platform. That's it. I mean, uh, you wonder, I mean, was, was Bernays <laughs> Way back. some sort of instruction manual or something? <laughs> Essentially, that's what Neil Sanders is doing. He's, he's acting as if he's giving an instruction seminar to marketers. 
he quotes Walter Lippmann, uh, painting pictures in people's heads. A very good quote, because that's really what it's it about. Is. It's, it is. It's just putting pictures in your head. But it's got to be the right picture. If you, I mean, Bernays is right. If you get it wrong, you can send the, the wrong message, and it can backfire on you. And I was thinking of William Hague when he was leader of the Tories a few years ago, and uh, I remember him posing with a baseball cap on backwards. Yeah. And it just, I thought, oh, you know, your image is the antithesis of that. What a stupid thing to do. I don't think it worked for him at all. <laughs> yeah, well, Neil Sanders was saying other things. Uh, don't wear a tie and also get, get pictured with dogs. <laughs> and then he said, here's a slide. Oh, here's a picture of me with a dog. Here's a picture of me with two dogs. You could do any any amount of heinous crimes, but if you're pictured with a dog, then uh, you yes. know, everything's fine. If you don't have a tie, then you look really cool and relaxed. That's it, yeah. <laughs> One thing you did miss is that uh, technique which I've heard other people talk about is where if two leaders are meeting, one tries to give the impression that he's in control or she is in control by putting her arm around the other leader. <laughs> yes, or also when you, when, you, when you handshake, if you put your other hand over the hand, that's a sign of dominance. Yes. And he talks about... Um, putting universal truths into products. And he said that Esso, the petrol manufacturer, they advertise products as working on a molecular level. And then he said, well, doesn't everything work on a molecular level? Blinding people with science. Yeah, that's a favourite one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he said to do with this thing about natural. And I mean, I think when you buy products in the supermarket and they're organic, I think you're on slightly safer ground than, than when they say natural. Yes. I mean, he's talking about when you buy tomato ketchup, there's often a picture of a tomato next to it. And he said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing ketchup growing in a field. <laughs> he was saying, you know, just because something's natural doesn't mean it's good. And he said, you know, scorpions, malaria, herpes and dog feces are more natural than jam. But which would you spread on your morning toast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are loads of great things that he said in there. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, it's called The Art of Creating Reality. And another, another interesting thing he did was um, this phrase, up to. Colgate reduces plaque by up to 98%. Then he said, uh, I've actually planted some envelopes. They contain a prize of up to £1,000. Would everyone like to open their envelopes? And, of course, the envelopes contain zeros. It's, it's this thing where you're not actually lying. You're just creating an impression. Unless people really think about it, which, you know, if you're an impulse buyer, then you're not going to do that. Then, um, yes, I think he also said some product helps to reduce the visual signs of ageing. Helps reduce <laughs> the visual signs of ageing, yeah, exactly. Which wasn't quantified in any way whatsoever. So exactly. How much anything you put on your face, I should think, would, would help to hide something. So it's not much of a claim, really, is it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And the thing that really stuck out, he was saying that when people are in crowds, they very quickly assume a crowd identity. Would you not think there's... Is there anything to that? Yeah, I was certainly interested by the idea of this de-individuation theory, mm. where you cease to function in some ways in the crowd as an individual, and that partial loss of the sense of self which changes your behaviour or can do, so mm. that you will do things that you wouldn't normally do. And so there are some instincts within you that you don't normally express for very good reasons, but under those circumstances you might be more inclined to. And I was thinking of the riots a few years ago mm. in London, and uh, how people just ended up looting. People were quite shocked by that. And I'm just wondering if that is, in fact, the kind of thing that's going on there, that people cease to operate as individuals and took on this kind of group mm. way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, you could be right. I mean, um, if I look at my own sort of life, I, I really put a lot of it down to school. I mean, I'm sure it's probably even more primal than that, but at school I just remember how much of a hard time people who were out-of-the-box thinkers had, you know, and... Uh, actually had a couple of school friends who were kind of damaged by school, really. Yeah, it's tough. It's, it's, it's right. really giving the impression that if, if you are an out-of-the-box thinker, if you are an individual, you, I think your life is going to be more difficult, yes. basically. Yes. 
to some extent, my daughter experiences some of that around this area because, you know, I come from the south of England, so I speak with a kind of BBC accent, and so does she. And yet in this area, because we're in the sort of Liverpudlian Lancashire area, that seems quite unusual to a lot of the kids. And, of course, they call her posh. But actually, in comparison with many of the accents that are around, you know, my... You know, you go down south, my accent is not that posh, really. But she feels got at by that, you know, that she's not part of the group. And, of course, you know, kids are like, um, Mm. they will pick on anything that's different, which I think continues in adulthood to some extent and is exploited. Oh, I think so, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I've said many times, you know, adults are not that different than children, you know. Other than this thing we have to do, which is to basically to appear to act in an adult way, I, Mm. I think I'm not sure if fundamentally, you know, Given the right conditions, we can easily behave like children, can't we? I think so, exactly, given the right conditions. And a number of times on this podcast with guests who've talked about adult education techniques being influenced by Marxist ideas and you know the use of the, the facilitator creating a kind of group think within the group. And so anybody who thinks outside of the group think is ostracised. Well, that's a deliberate exploitation, isn't it, of that sort of human condition that even adults are susceptible to. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, just a couple of other things with Neil Sanders. I mean, he was making a comparison between people joining cults and people joining brands. And he, he basically said they do it for the same reason, which was to belong, which is obviously what we're mm. talking about. And then, he, of course, he went on to brand Obama, uh, which you and I have talked about both on and off, Mike, haven't we? Of course, people may know that Obama's uh, presidential campaign actually won some awards. Well, there's a brilliant quote from Chris Hedges on this one I've got to share with everybody. This is an interview on RT. Quote, Obama is a brand. He functions as a brand. In the same way that advertisers like Calvin Klein and Benetton a few years ago brought in people of colour, HIV-positive models, to give their products a kind of risque style and even progressive politics. That's, in essence, what Obama has been for the corporate state. And it worked quite effectively until a year later people realised that the old engines of corporate power remained virtually untouched and the suffering that was being visited upon citizens was continuing to accelerate. That's what a brand does. You confuse a brand with an experience. You confuse how you are made to feel with knowledge. You confuse propaganda with ideology. And it's not accidental that the advertising age gave the Obama campaign the marketing award of the year, beating out Nike and Zappos and Apple. You know, take it from the professionals, end quote. Wow, fantastic. And, of course, there is something attractive about having a president who is a, a person of colour. Mm. You know, I've heard so many people say that, and I, and I want to agree. I really want to agree, and yet I, I can't help thinking, yeah, but he was groomed as the person of colour brand for the corporate state. Mm. <laughs> you can't get away from it. Yeah, it makes me wonder, actually, Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton is being touted as some sort of feminist. That's the next uh, thing, isn't it? That's right. Next thing, a female president. Yeah, yeah. It's just about pushing buttons, isn't it, and getting the right person. You get the votes and everything seems okay, and the wheels just carry on as they did before. That's it, yeah. Yeah, well yeah. done, Chris Hedges. You've got his spot on. <laughs> yeah, not wrong, is he? Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, the Neil Sanders talk, I highly recommend that. Um, I won't spoil it for everyone by going through all of it, so... Otherwise, there wouldn't be any point watching it. So uh, I think I've made the main points. So it's, uh... Well, uh, we divided up this task, didn't we? So you've done that one, and uh, I decided to have a look at this video and indeed article by David Kane from raptitude.com called Your Lifestyle Has Already Been Designed. Actually, a great video. I will certainly link to that as well because it really is very good. And what I like about this is it takes so many of the ideas that we've been looking at, and uh, but it, it sort of extrapolates it to an even wider aspect because he even talks about the very structure of work of the 40-hour week 
Um, I'll explain that in a second, but he uh, begins by explaining that he'd been away from the rat race for quite some time, and he noted how careful he was with spending money while he was away, and he enjoyed things more. And then he'd come back into the world of normal work, and uh, he found that he was spending money more carelessly, and so he takes the example of a cup of coffee, and he realised he'd been spending a lot of money on these coffees and actually not enjoying it as much as he did when he wasn't in the in the rat race. Mm-hmm. That led him to the thought that, you know, corporations need us to buy stuff that we don't actually need. And like we were saying before, you know, they, they mm-hmm. encourage a culture of dissatisfaction that gets satisfied temporarily by this business of spending, but it never actually really deals with it. You're still dissatisfied, so you've got to spend some more. And he very cleverly i think saw how the 40 hour week fitted into that pattern and that actually it's in the interests of the corporate world to keep that 40 hour week in place so he's saying that you'd expect with technology and the like and i remember years ago people saying things like this as technology advances we'll have more free time well that's not the way it works (laughs) because if you're working those 40 hours at least then you have to make the very most of the little spare time that you've got So you actually can't do the really good stuff, the free stuff like reading, walking, writing, thinking, because you just don't have the time to do that. So how do you fill that void? How do you satisfy that desire to sort of express yourself and feel free? Well, what you do have is money. And so that becomes the option. Uh, And then you buy goods. So it really is in the interest of corporations to squeeze the amount of free time you have so that you keep this sort of wheel turning round. A little quote here nicely picks this up, quote, But the eight-hour workday is too profitable for big business, not because of the amount of work people get done in eight hours, the average office worker gets less than three hours of actual work done in eight hours, but because it makes for such a purchase-happy public. Keeping free time scarce means people pay a lot for convenience, gratification, and any other relief they can buy. It keeps them watching television and its commercials. It keeps them unambitious outside of work and he doesn't play on that one too much there but that's something i've often felt that the the very you know structure that we've just been talking about is also a way of controlling people so that you don't end up having any kind of revolution to actually change it if people don't have time to think about their situation and especially if they feel relatively happy in their situation there won't be any kind of change coming along so again it's in the interests of the structures that exist to keep this in place at all costs. And he makes another very interesting observation that actually our our lack of health, not just our sort of spiritual lack of health, but our physical lack of health is also essential to this process. So he points to obesity and, and depression, pollution, you know, that is necessary. Those problems are necessary to sustain this he says a trillion dollar economy in the case of the US Um, he says quote for the economy to be healthy America has to remain unhealthy healthy happy people don't feel like they need much that they don't already have and that means they don't buy a lot of junk don't need to be entertained as much and they don't end up watching a lot of commercials end quote you know that really spoke to me when i heard him say that so i mean i think that's a a brilliant it's quite a short video uh 10 minutes or so it really is worth looking at and uh, taking in that message yeah i mean uh, i with all this concentration of free time and all this it's really creating a kind of desperation as you said you're dead right that with a 40-hour week 
in a way, it's quite desperate. Like you said, you don't do things like meditating and walking because you haven't got time. And you can't think. You certainly can't think through the, the big questions about life. I mean, you might be able to sort of ask the question, well, what's life about? Uh, what's my life about? What's the meaning of the universe kind of thing? But you then can't actually think it through. You certainly can't sort of read big books of philosophy and theology and actually try to think, well, what do I really think about this? Because you just simply do not have the time to do that. And so you're more likely to perhaps just turn on a TV program that gives you a very sort of quick potted version of some answer oh yeah i like that for whatever reason but it doesn't mean it really you thought it through logically or it's actually satisfying at all yeah absolutely right yeah i mean i don't know if you know but in spain uh, where i live now and in italy where i used to live basically everything shuts down in august and everyone goes on holiday mm -hmm. i tend not to stay here during the summer i go to england or this year i'm going to south america I was just thinking, that is it really relaxing when the whole country is going to be going to basically the same places? What's relaxing about that? I mean, beaches just crammed with people, you know. That's right. So when you get a bank holiday here, for example, there'll be some tremendous display over in Liverpool and you're told that half a million people are going to make their way to Liverpool. You know, the news says, that's the place to be. No, it's not. I don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I do this thing in my lessons about uh, signs. You know, there's a lot of stuff with comedy signs from around the world where non-native speakers. And one of them said, uh, this place is renowned for its solitude. Thousands flock every year to enjoy its solitude. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know what I mean? It's like we don't have any space, uh, as the guy on the video was saying. We don't have space and time. We don't have room to breathe, you know? Yeah, and that really brings us on to the last thing, which was to look at what can our response to this be. And I actually want to quote him again, actually, at the end of that video or article, because he does say that, well, I'll just quote it, I don't think it's necessary to shun the whole ugly system and go live in the woods, pretending to be a deaf mute, as Holton Caulfield often fantasized. But we could certainly do well to understand what big commerce really wants us to be. They've been working for decades to create millions of ideal consumers, and they have succeeded. Unless you're a real anomaly, your lifestyle has already been designed. End quote. Chill factor. <laughs> you know, the hairs on the back of my neck did stand on end when I heard that. But I thought it was really interesting what he said. But we could really do well to understand what big commerce really wants us to be. So even if we can say there's a lot of this that's immoral, but if we put that aside and we say, well, this is just the reality that we live in, is there anything we can do? Well, one thing we certainly can do is to understand the system. And maybe not all of it is absolutely bad, but just by becoming aware of it means that you can kind of fight back just with that awareness and not be subject to control so much. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I was saying to you before, when, when alcoholics go to Alcoholics Anonymous, what's the first thing they tell them? What's 50% of the battle is admitting you're an alcoholic. So what... What I think we need to do is admit that we've been duped and we are being duped, mm. you know. And one of my conclusions, again, to kind of go full circle to the first, my audio essay that you featured last year, this is a conspiracy. <laughs> no? I mean, you know, we've talked endlessly about the, the phrase conspiracy theory, and I think most people would equate it more to, to governments and politics. But, I mean, this is pure conspiracy in terms of advertisers and marketers spend all day trying to find ways to manipulate people into buying things they don't need. Yes. That's the truth. And so we need to just be big. You know, we need to be adults and say, we're malleable. We've been duped. As you said, that's 50% of the battle is awareness. And then there are practical solutions as well, you know. Can I just chip in there? I think we also need to be aware that we have to go on learning about this and continue to expand our awareness. 
because you know i think it's easy to think well we, we know we've got the handle on this but as i said before we don't really know the extent to which we are being manipulated and I, I get the impression that the more we look into this the more we will find that that's the case and as i mentioned earlier the business about the piano that bernays was talking about in that example just that one simple thing of people trying to sell pianos what was actually involved in that example how it was you know you'd have events and you'd involve uh, celebrities and in terms of conspiracy if you want to see it that way that's quite a big conspiracy involving all sorts of people who are just coming into that and they're not sort of in on the whole plan they're brought into it for commercial reasons well that's quite a big plan just to sell a piano so you know i think that awareness of ours needs to continue to grow and we need to continue to educate ourselves and be observant and and see more and more ways in which this is happening so that we can be resistant absolutely i think we also need to understand that they're tapping into our unconscious and uh, possibly our subconscious you know because it's not always easy to make a distinction between subconscious and unconscious but there's a clear distinction between the conscious mind which is where most people dwell essentially and then the unconscious and when advertisers and marketers are tapping into our unconscious desires that we're not even aware of we have to accept the fact that they know more about us than we do so I think yeah, it's really a two-step process become aware and then start doing something about it. And, I mean, I've got a few solutions if you're interested. Go, yes, go for it. Okay, excellent. Uh, most of these come from a video I found, uh, which was called A Parent's Guide to Resisting Television Advertising. It was by a gentleman called Edward J. Harshman. He said, uh, for example, put a £20 or €20 Euro or $20 note in your hand and then create a visualization where you buy something and then you have a problem with the product and you have to keep ringing people up and you keep being uh, sent from one department to another and think about all the stress that happens and then open your hand again and look at your 20 euro note and think why don't I just not spend that you know <laughs> yes. that's one um, another one which I really like is make a list of all the things you need and want and anything that's not on that list you don't need it rather than being suggested things that you might buy think to yourself what do I actually need and then anything that I don't need, you know, is superfluous. You know, we have to produce a list of things we need rather than responding to someone else's list of what we yes. need. I think that's great advice, that it's one. That's great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Can I, I just mean, throw one in? <laughs> uh, that was just, it's just very, very simple advice and something that we do in our family. And that is when we're, we don't actually watch that much television, but when we do, for example, a film that we particularly want to watch and it's got adverts in the middle, what we tend to do is to just turn the sound off. And it's amazing how effective that is, helping you to analyse what that advert is doing. Because, of course, the advert is presented as a whole, it's conceived of as a whole, and once you cut it in half by taking the sound away, you can see the, the visual manipulation that's going on. And that's been really good doing that you know, with my daughter as well, helping her to see how these things are working. So I do recommend that one. It's quite funny, actually, as well. <laughs> I think it's good that you're talking about doing that with children as well, because... Um as, as we said earlier, when I talked about the child marketing, you know, it's, if you can get them doing that at a young age, then that's going to stand them in good stead in the adult. It's amazing how it turns things on its head. So you've got some, you know, really cool person, absolutely perfect, everything about them, and then you turn the sound off, and they just look like a complete bozo. <laughs> it just doesn't work at all, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without the music and without the right words, they just look stupid. Why are you behaving like that? Mm, that's it. Yeah, without the window dressing, so to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. Another one he said was, uh, beware of disclaimers. Now, of course, on lots of products, you'll see a disclaimer in very tiny writing or, or an advert. They'll say something very, very quickly at the end. That's right. Yeah, so you can really not hear it at all. Yeah, it? I mean, you know, if you've got a video, you could perhaps pause that and read it. Or, you, you know, uh, they're always obviously made incredibly boring, just like political uh, documents. 
And then in a very obvious one, which I advocate to anyone, is either limit or eliminate uh, TV use. And when I say that, I mean, <laughs> I've seen lots of these groups of, of people actually destroying televisions. I, I see that more, more metaphorically. I, I don't think you have to not have a television set. But uh, the whole thing is to be discerning, you know, and, and I think we were saying earlier about not, not using the TV as a friend. And he, he gave a brilliant analogy. It's just like when someone gives up smoking and they, and they get their sense of smell back. He said, if you stop using the TV, and I can attest to this absolutely in my own life, you suddenly find you're, you're forming your own opinions rather than responding to someone else's suggestions. And I love the analogy with smoking because I'm also an ex-smoker. And I, mm. I remember, you know, after a couple of months suddenly thinking, well, I can smell things and I can also smell smoke as well. So like you said, when, when you're aware of it, you can go back to an advert and you can dissect it and you can see exactly what they're doing. So you're almost like an ex-smoker pitying uh, smokers, you know what I mean? So. Yes, oh, I do. And in fact, I've uh, noticed a similar kind of thing with having become interested in truth movement kind of issues over the last, well, actually quite a long time, really, but, but more actively in the last few years and sort of for some time not really bothering to look very much at mainstream and then going back to it in order to find out well, just what is being put on the mainstream here and seeing just how much propaganda there is, thinking, I didn't really notice that so much before. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you're very aware of the boiling frog analogy. Oh, yes, it's perfect, isn't it? Can I just tell your listeners in case they don't know? Yeah, I do. If you were trying to boil a frog, if you put it in boiling water, it'll immediately jump out. If you put it in cold water and very, 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 very gradually turn it up, the frog won't realise and it will boil. And what, what we need to do is, um, like you said, if you stop watching TV or for me, if I go back to England on holiday and I've been away for six months, you really see the difference. But while you're immersed in it, you don't see the difference because it's all very subtle. You need to get away from it for a while rather than just being immersed in it all the time. If you spend time away with it, away from it, then you really see the reality when you come back, just as, just as you said. So totally with you on that one. So you need to spend a sustained amount of time away from advertising as much as you can, you know. And I understand it's difficult for people and everything. Absolutely. It is difficult, sure. And also, as uh, that guy said, we can't shun the whole ugly system. It's just not possible to be completely disconnected unless you live in the woods. But uh, most of us are not going to do that, and I don't recommend going living in the woods necessarily. But there are things that we can do to disengage, aren't there? And the first step in that is is awareness and this growing awareness. And as you say, trying to create space and to create time and and to realise that the system doesn't want you to have that space and doesn't want you to have that time because it does not want you to reflect on your own life or wider issues. So if we can be aware of that and then create that space, I think there's greater hope for all of us. So, you know, thanks ever so much, Anthony, for coming back on to chat about these things. We could pretty much go on forever with this, but we're going to have to, I think we're going to have to draw a close now. So it's been brilliant speaking to you and uh, very much hope to speak to you again. Yeah, um, thanks very much, Drew. I mean, I I really do enjoy these chats and I I think you're doing a great job with your podcast and your website. And it's, I always find whenever whenever I talk to someone who does seem to be aware of of what's going on, it's kind of heartwarming in a way. Because uh, we are still the minority, and I, I don't mean to appear smug at all. There's nothing special about me. All that's happened is in the last five or six years, I've made a concerted effort to make daily improvements in my life and, and daily observations and try and spread as much of my knowledge as I can without being too preachy you know, via Facebook. And Actually, another, another thing um, for people who are maybe aware of the, what seems to be happening in society, I would just say to them, 
try every day, just try and engage someone. Don't preach to them, but try and bring up something. Try and change the discourse. There you go. <laughs> I'm quoting myself now. I've been reduced to quoting my own quotes. Yeah, well, for, for anybody who's new to TMR, that's actually a discussion that Anthony and I had some while ago. So I will direct people back to that one. Go listen to that, Changing the Discourse, where we covered uh, quite a few of those issues back then. Um, so, yeah, great speaking to you. In fact, I very much enjoy speaking to you. And indeed, as I've, as I've said many times on this show, such conversations are cathartic indeed because you realize you're not the only person thinking this way there are other people who share these thoughts as well and thankfully although yes i suppose we're still in a minority it is a growing minority and in that there is hope great to speak to you anthony thanks again talk to you again soon i spend money i don't have 